Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance Episode 111. And in this episode, we'll discuss a method of home ownership which may seem attractive to a lot of people, especially since median home prices across Australian metro cities are rising fast. This method of home ownership is called the rent-to-own home schemes. Now, in terms of house prices in Sydney and Melbourne, we're nudging close to a million dollars. And as it stands in Sydney, it's actually above a million dollars. If you're an overseas listener, yes, that is absolutely insane compared to some other countries. Now, I've also done an episode just prior on episode 110 about rent vesting. So if you're interested in that method of home ownership, go back and have a listen to it. Rent to own home schemes are not all they seem though. And it's important to understand your risks before embarking on such schemes, especially if you're a millennial or Gen Z and get really dejected thinking you may never own a home at this rate. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The aim here is to be educated about personal finances and improving your financial literacy. The second aim is that using that education to feel empowered so that you can take that knowledge to your credentialed advisor and speak at a level that you can understand it. And the third aim is to be entertained. Just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you make any financial decisions after listening to one of my episodes please take it to the appropriate credentialed advisor. But if you're stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax money and put it aside. That is your money. You are the most important person in your life and that money is never to be touched ever again. Step two is invest that money, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market and index funds, so I just buy index funds. Step three is reinvest dividends. The power of compounding, especially over the long term, is phenomenal. And step four long-term in my humble view, is not 5, 10, or 15 years. I'm talking 20, 30, if not 40 plus years. The longer you do it, the more beneficial it is for you. And step five, my favorite, wherever possible, try and automate the investments forever. If you did these five simple steps over the long term, you're probably going to end up with more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring you happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before we get on to the main topic of rent-to-own home schemes, I had a question from Neats, who asks... (laughs) 
Hi Dev, I was wondering if you could discuss some ways to save for a house deposit. I am a final year medical student and wasn't sure if I should be investing in ETFs for five to seven years in the hope of getting enough returns for a house deposit. From what I understand, this is too short term to invest in the stock market. Also, are there any first term owners grants and or schemes available? Thanks for the question, Neats. And it's a very relevant one for pretty much anyone who's looking to buy their first home. Home ownership in Australia is becoming more and more difficult. And I worry about my kids not being able to afford to buy a house in one of the major metro cities. Now, let's break down your question into three components. The first component is, should you invest in ETFs if saving for a home? Now, generally speaking, I'm not a great fan of investing into the stock market if the time frame is anywhere less than 20 years. Traditional financial advisors, and I'm by all means not an advisor, say that stock market is for someone with a 7 to 10 year time frame. I think that's a bit too aggressive. I'm way more conservative. I think when you're investing into the stock market, minimum should be 20 years. And I also don't like the idea of selling anything which is potentially rising in value and producing an income, such as dividends. Not to mention that when you sell something that's rising in value, when you make a capital gain that is a profit, you need to pay some tax on it. For me, if I'm going to be investing into the stock market for the long term, I really don't want to be able to sell it. So again, not a great fan of investing in ETFs and then selling it for a home deposit. I'm not a great fan of investing for ETFs for you know five to seven year time frame. The second component of your question is, how do you allocate funds for home deposits? Now, it's very difficult to save for a home deposit and also have emergency funds saved up. The more I think about it, I'm having to compromise on a hardline stance of saving both at the same time. It might work for high income earners, but as a med student, when you become an intern or a resident, you know, comparatively speaking to other doctors, you're going to be on a lower income. So I get it that trying to save for a home deposit and also an emergency fund at the same time is not for everyone. So at least have $1,000 of emergency funds and then have a simple budgeting approach in order to ramp up your savings for your house deposit. Now, my budgeting approach is quite simple and it's based on the after-tax income of 30, 30, 20, 20 rule. And they're all in percentages. I take 30% and set it aside for expenses. So food, lights, water, etc. I take 30% and set aside for rent or mortgage. So if you have a lower rent than that, that's great. And I know that some people, particularly medical students, will be graduating and be living with their parents. So essentially they're living practically rent-free, which is even better. Then you've got to take 20% of after-tax income and pay yourself first, right? That's you pay yourself money, never to be touched again. Now, you can use that to either invest in long-term prospects, such as ETFs, or you can actually chuck it for your home deposit. That is still paying yourself first. And then you've got leftover 20%, which I generally allocate for luxury items or miscellaneous spending or discretionary spending. Now, if you're really stingy, you can use that for your home deposit as well. I really don't think it's a great idea to be spending on luxury items while trying to save for a home deposit. The occasional luxury holiday, maybe, but 
not the whole 20%. And, you know, don't buy a brand new car. Don't buy a brand new iPhone 12 Pro. All of that can wait for another few years when you actually get your fellowship. So in your case, if it was me in 2021 graduating, this is probably how I would do it. 30% of expenses, so that's done. 30% goes towards rent, and in your case, you might not have rent, so that can be your house deposit saving. 20% of after-tax money pay yourself. Again, that can be house deposit money, or you can chuck it into a high-interest savings account or an ETF fund and never to be seen again. And the leftover 20%, if I were you, I would just save all of it. So if you're very serious about saving for a home, then you're now saving up to 40 to 60% of your income for a home deposit. And of course, it depends on how aggressive you want to be. But I think saving for a home deposit may take you around three to five years. Um, And the other tip that I have is don't buy too much house. That is a common mistake that I see a lot of junior doctors make. They're committing to home loans of, you know, $800, $900 million early in their career. Try and stick to 30% of your after-tax monthly income for mortgage repayments. Banks will lend you money because that's their job. They want you to sign up for the largest mortgage that you can get. My recommendation is make sure you have positive cash flow Try not to buy too much house. Buy a house that you, you know, can potentially um, make money on in the long run, or at least you can live in, and then build on that later on as you progress into your career. Now, the third component of your question is, are there any first homeowners grants available? And the answer is yes. Now, to overseas listeners, we are fortunate that the Australian government here helps first home buyers. Now, they give out a grant and it depends on the state or territory that you're in. In addition to that, there are also other programs which may also be available to units. So that could be stamp duty concessions, first home deposit schemes, and first home builder scheme. So let's go through it individually. Neats actually lives in Victoria, so I will go through it in Victoria. But for other listeners, make sure you check your state regulations. The first thing about first home buyer's grant is in Victoria, if you buy a home in regional areas, you get $20,000. If you buy a home in the city areas, you get $10,000. Now, the maximum home purchase price allowed is $750,000. If you buy anything more expensive, you won't get any of this. And also, the home must be less than five years old. Now, I did not know this. I thought you could just buy an old house, um, you know, thinking that you may be able to demolish it. But I did find out that the home has to be less than five years old. And I think that's trying to spur the new building industry, new home building industry, beg your pardon. The stamp duty concessions wise, if your house is valued less than $600,000, you don't pay any stamp duty. I think it's a relatively new thing. And if it's six hundred to 750000 you may get a stamp duty concession. And in terms of stamp duty concessions for homes up to a million dollars, if you don't live in it, that is that is not your principal place of residence, that scheme expires on the 1st of July, 2021, and you get a 50% stamp duty concession for those types of homes. So that's actually pretty generous. 
Now, if you're buying off-the-plan homes or apartments, there are concessions also available for that. I think this is to spruik the building industry, which has struggled during the COVID pandemic. And if you're a young farmer buying farming property up to $750,000, they're also eligible for concessions. Now, there's also, in addition to all this, called a first home deposit scheme. This is not state-based. It's more of a national program. You can research more about it at nhfic.gov.au website, which provides more detailed information. And it's really easy to understand when you actually visit the website. So, Neats, I hope this clarifies your question. And thanks for asking the question about how to go about saving for a home deposit. And in your case, if you have no consumer debt, no real liabilities, then you can really ramp up your savings rate in order to save for a home deposit as quickly as you possibly can, provided that you have an emergency fund of at least $1,000. Now to the main topic, what is rent-to-own home schemes? Now, in today's Australia, there's a perfect storm of A, rising living costs, B, slow and low wage growth, and C, crazy high home prices, making home ownership more and more difficult to achieve in Australia. Now, I reflect on my own experience 11 years ago buying my first home in Melbourne and thinking I paid too much for it. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine how crazy things could get. Now, I feel how baby boomers must have been feeling when they randomly made money on homes they'd bought in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So, what is exactly a rent-to-own home scheme all about? Now, basically, they're leasing agreements that allow renters to the right to buy a home at the end of their leasing agreement. Now, the price they pay at the end of the agreement is agreed to prior to signing the leasing agreement. The obvious advantage here is you don't need a massive home deposit as you would need buying a home the traditional way. Now, you still need a deposit, don't get me wrong, but it's not as high. And I'll talk about how it works a bit later in terms of the deposit side of things. Now, it also means because they've agreed to a predetermined price, it protects the buyer from any future price rises. You sign the contract, you sign the agreement at the start of your leasing agreement. And the price that you agree on is the price that you're going to pay at the end of the leasing agreement in order to purchase the property. So have you heard of this somewhere else before? The option to buy something and paying a bit of an options premium for it and then can buy it at a predetermined price or not buy it at all. Yeah, it's kind of like, not exactly the same, but kind of like derivatives, which is options trading in the stock market in a similar way, except there are no leasing agreements. Of course, if the home market enters a downturn and the prices crash, the renter still has to pay the predetermined price for the home that they intend to buy at the end of the leasing agreement. Remember, you agreed to the price before you actually start renting the place. At no stage during the lease do the renters actually own any part of the home. So that's really, really critical. And I'll come back to why that is very critical later in the episode. So let's use an example to highlight the concept, bare bones, of what a rent-to-own home scheme is. So Amy is a 33-year-old female and earns an income of $80,000. She decides to enter into a rent-to-own home scheme. 
The monthly rent for a three-bedroom independent home in the suburb of her liking is $1,500 per month, which are the, basically the market rates. But usually, she'd be charged more in rent-to-own schemes. So she has to pay a little bit of a premium. She signed a leasing agreement, and in that, it mentions a predetermined price to buy the property at the end of the lease as $450,000. There will be an options premium on top of the increased rent. But again, we'll go into that a bit later in the episode. So does Amy have to apply for a home loan at the end of the leasing agreement to buy the home? And the answer is yes. Amy still needs to get a home loan, unless, of course, she's got, you know, $450,000 in the bank account, which unlikely because otherwise, why would she do the rent to own scheme? Now, the risk here is if Amy loses her job, she's paid all the rent so far and owns nothing in return. It's really important to understand that whatever rent that Amy has paid is still rent. It doesn't go towards the actual cost of purchasing the home. So who is this sort of scheme actually aimed at? It is aimed at people who can't get traditional home loans or can't save for a home deposit. So these people are trying to look for alternative ways to own a home, to try and get their leg into the property market. Let's go into it with a little bit more detail. Usually with rent-to-own home schemes, there are two components. Component one is a rental agreement lasting usually two to five years and can be longer depending on the vendor. And there is a vendor who owns the home who rents out the home to the person willing to buy it off them at the end of the rental agreement. Component two is the option to buy at the end of the leasing agreement. So how do deposits work for such schemes? Now, you still need a house deposit, but usually this is lower because of the first homeowner's grant in your state or territory. And this is why it links in with Neat's question about what are the grants available. The grant goes directly to the vendor. Now, is the rental market rates higher compared to, um, you know, your market rates for the average rent in that suburb? And usually for rent-to-own home schemes, the rent is higher than market rates. This is a disadvantage to the renter. So what are the fees involved? There is an options fee or there's an options premium. This fee is to secure the right to buy the home at the end of the lease. Remember, the vendor cannot sell the home in the meantime to anyone else, even if someone knocks on their door and offers above market rates because they too have signed an agreement to the renter in order to sell the property at the end of the leasing agreement. So the vendor takes this risk of market going up as well. But the options premium, which can be several thousand dollars for the entire rental agreement period, is often deducted from the final price of the home. Now, what about stamp duty, insurance and building maintenance? Now, this depends on the agreement. Some agreements don't have this clause, but other agreements do. In fact, I'd be very surprised if this is not routinely included in the agreement. So always make sure you read the fine print, particularly if you're going for a rent-to-own home scheme. And you need to know what happens if you miss a rental payment. This is where it gets very, very complicated. Depending on the contract, if you fail to pay rent due to extenuating circumstances, then even then, 
you lose the option to buy the home and you lose all the rent, including the options fees, you may have already paid. The contract can be terminated as a result of you not paying the rent. This is a huge risk for the renter. So what are the overall costs? So the costs are the rent, which is usually above market rates. There's options premium, which is extra pay. And there's also the home deposit. So let's use an example to highlight these points. Amy is keen to enter a rent-to-own agreement for a home valued at about $400,000. The agreement period is three years, and the deposit works out to be around $28,000. Her state government gives $20,000 first homeowner's grant because it's a regional home, so she only needs to save $8,000, which is the difference. So your deposit is now lower. See how that becomes lower compared to had she had to save for the full deposit. The rent ends up being about $1,500 in market rates, which is $375 per week. But now she's charged $2,000 per month, which is about $500 per week, because the rent is going to be above market rates for these sort of schemes. And on top of that, there's an options premium, which is an additional $100 per week. So how much will Amy have paid after three years? Now, including the first homeowner's grant, Amy would have paid about $114,400, of which $94,400 would have been her own money. That's the rent. The house is agreed to be sold at $450,000. Remember, the value is only $400, but they agreed to sell for a higher price because it is a rent-to-own scheme. So you've got to subtract the $28,000 of deposit from that and you've got to minus the $14,400 options premium, which Amy has already paid during the leasing agreement, and that usually goes towards the equity of the home. So the remaining amount required is around $407,600. Now the $94,400 of her own money that she spent, that's for rent. That doesn't go towards the equity of the home. It's really critical that people understand that. So Amy is still liable to pay $407,600 at the end of the three-year leasing agreement in order to purchase this property, which means Amy still has to be able to get a home loan for around $407,600. Now, if you included rent she has paid, which is, of course, not included towards the equity, it would cost Amy around $522,000 to buy a home worth around $450,000. Remember, this excludes any interest costs in the home loan. This is just the cost of getting into the property market, and we haven't even included the stamp duty cost yet. I've just kept it as simple as possible. So I guess, is it a good scheme? Is this a good way to buy a home? Now, if you don't have the option of buying a home the traditional way, then this might be a reasonable option to consider. It's not a cheaper option to buy a home. It's actually a very expensive way to buy the same home. The rent money does not count towards the equity, but if you're saving for a home deposit anyway, the traditional way, you still need to account for rent costs because you need to live somewhere. Except you wouldn't pay the above market rates rent and you wouldn't pay the options premium. 
Now, the risk is if you don't pay rent on time or something happens, termination of the contract by the vendor is definitely possible. And of course, they've kept all the rent. And if anything happens before the lease expires, you've paid rent, which doesn't count towards your equity. Of course, if the market crashes, you've just agreed to pay more for the property in the agreement at the start of the rental lease agreement. But the vendor also takes the risk because if the property market rises during the three years, in this particular case, they've just lost money too. So it kind of works both ways. So how do you actually go about the process of rent-to-own home schemes? Now, firstly, you need to find a property. This takes longer, usually, because you need to find a vendor who's agreeable to the proposal. A lot can go wrong. So the options are fairly limited. You may find real estate agents may not be interested in such deals, but I'm sure there are specialists in your area. You just need to Google it and find out. You've got to research the property. So if you want to learn about research on some of the basics about buying a home, I have done an episode way back in episode 11 called Buy a Home with Your Head, Not Your Heart. Go back and listen to it if you're interested. And you've got to research your seller. You may want to ensure your vendor has also a sound financial state. Essentially, your dream of owning a property is tied in with your vendor. Because if they have poor financial status, they can make a decision to default on their mortgage, which ultimately affects your ability to exercise your option to buy the property at the end of the rental agreement. So if you're a tradesperson, you may also want to ask them to waive the options premium in return for maintaining the property, doing minor repairs out of your own pocket. Everything is negotiable. Always seek legal advice, of course, make sure everything is ironed tight, make your rental payments on time, and at the end of the leasing agreement, secure a home loan, buy the home, which is the last step. Congrats, you've just made it. Now, the critical point that I did mention is that the vendor, if they've got a mortgage on the property they're trying to sell, if they default on the mortgage, it could affect your dream of owning a property. So that's the risk, in addition to all the other risks we talk about, that the renter is taking. So researching the seller and their financial status is really important. And you may want to ask the vendor to provide a statement of their financial health. So that's about it for this episode. And if you want me to cover a particular topic, contact me via Facebook and I will do my best to factor it into an episode. Please make sure you give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or any podcasting app you're using. It really does help promote the podcast so more people can download and listen to it. And if you really want, leave a review, and I might read it out live in one of the future episodes. And on that theme, here is a review on Apple Podcasts from Cassie Lee 931 A very good podcast, and as a junior doctor with absolutely no clue about finance, these podcasts have lit a sparkle. Thanks, Cassie, and you're absolutely right. I regularly get contacted by junior doctors who say the same thing. They have so much to worry about, study, career, getting into a training program, exams, fees, and the last thing they want to worry about is finance. All I ask is simply pay attention to your finances, perhaps just one week every year, and trust me, this will be all that is needed for the vast majority of junior doctors. And here's the deal. I talked to a junior doctor recently who's 29 years age, and they have a seven-figure net worth. 
How is that possible? They invested right from year one of medical school with their part-time income, and there is nothing really stopping them from achieving a 10 to $30 million portfolio. And ironically, being financially free enables doctors to focus on their patient care, their passion, and their craft, their handiwork, if they're surgeons. Now, remember to like Devraga Facebook page, shout out questions and comments or topic suggestions. Share this channel with family, friends, Apple Podcast, Anchor App, CastBox. I'm all over the shop when it comes to podcasting platforms. You can also go to my website, devraga.com, which has all the episodes listed. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money. You are the most important person in your life. And learn about the concept of rent-to-own schemes, particularly when it comes to homes. The advantages, the disadvantages, the risks, and the pitfalls. This is Deb Rugger, Personal Finance, Episode 111. And as always, please make sure you stay safe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.